Hey guys, how's it going? Salon Connor here coming with the first video episode of the podcast or just the regular ninth audio for episode okay. of the podcast, depending on how, depending on what we say. Yeah, good to be back. We've been discussing one part of, again, this is like kind of slowly evolving into a Palestinian podcast, but we've been discussing Wait, one what? very specific. <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> we're, we're single issue voters now we've been discussing basically this uh one particular part of i guess you would call it zionist propaganda which is kind of the idea that israel has only defended itself into existence which doesn't make sense if you have ever expanding borders that that is an act of aggression you know, you can't possibly be defending yourself and taking over land. But we're going to go through it in a little bit more detail to kind of show how absolutely not accidental Israel's, uh, I guess, creation is. So in order to kick this off, to give background into how Zionism began, Connor, do you want to like kind of lead out from what happened in the 1800s? Yes, sure. So... I, I think it's useful to look at what was happening in Europe in the late 1800s, like the 1880s specifically. All over Europe, there was like a growing societal idea of what it means to be a nation, what it means to be a people. And just like, you know, the Germans trying to trace back their heritage to like the Teutons or the English people to the Anglo-Saxons. Zionism came out as this method for Ashkenazi Jews in particular to think about their own history and who they were as a people. And basically the narrative is that Jews were forced several different times out of historic Israel or Palestine and dispersed all over the world, including the Jewish community in Europe. And to get back to their roots and to establish themselves as a nation again, they need to create a nation. And there, were, there was different regions they talked about doing this in. S some of the options were like Uganda, for example, Argentina, and of course, Palestine. And ultimately, obviously, they settled on Palestine. And over a few decades from the 1880s to the 1920s and after the 20s, European Jewish immigration to Palestine ramped up. And this was mostly just private individuals and groups of people buying land from the indigenous inhabitants of Palestine, the Palestinians. There, there's actually photos of an area around what is now Tel Aviv, where a group of European Jews got together and, and purchased a big plot of land. And it's specifically in the Tel Aviv area where most of them were immigrating to and where most of them were buying land. 
Yeah. So like one thing to point out is that this, the Zionist idea, it was, it did start out as like individual people buying land, but the Zionist agenda was very public. The goal was very constant and consistent. The Jewish people in Palestine, Jewish Palestinians were not necessarily buying land. I guess I should say Jewish immigrants to Palestine, the the native ones were not necessarily part of this. But the ones that were immigrating there did have the express goal of setting up their own state. The same way, like the man who started it in the 1880s, his name was Theodore Herzl, I think. He was a French guy. And it was the idea of Zionism was actually widely rejected by Jewish community leaders everywhere until about World War I, approximately that time. At which point, that was kind of like a turning point for, for I guess, Zionism. That was like the biggest than the first turning point because there was this one financier in Britain. Like why, like a lot of people ask, like, why would Britain help Israel? There's this one man, he was the inventor of acetone. His name was Wiseman. And acetone was like a critical part of like the arsenal. At the time, he was—he didn't invent acetone, sorry. He discovered a new way to make it for Britain. The year after he introduced that, the Sykes-Picot Agreement was written up, or the Belfort Declaration. The Belfort Declaration, sorry. The Belfort Declaration is a declaration that essentially says that there will be a national home for Jewish people in Palestine by the British. In the middle of World War One, when Britain was being bombed, Hundreds of thousands of British men and boys were being slaughtered. They were trying to fight back an expanding German army. Why would Britain feel the need to make a declaration about a piece of land in the Middle East that didn't necessarily go to its interests? Right? Like, why? That's 1917. That's the middle of the war. War didn't end until like 1918, 1919, right? So why exactly would they feel the need to do that? And that is because they needed that guy's acetone, right? That's what they needed. So after that point, that's when I would say Britain began immigrating Jewish people into Palestine because it it was called the British Mandate of Palestine. So Britain had full control to do whatever they want, right? They began introducing them and what's more is they began setting them up as standalone Jewish communities in order to set up like the baseline for Israel. For example, do you know about the 1929 riots? Those are like kind of like famously referenced in Israeli media and they were horrible because something like 250 people died almost evenly split between Jewish and Arab. What had happened previous to that was a Zionist leader said, and this is in 1925, right? Because I'm saying this because I want to give context to how public the idea was that Zionists wanted to set up a state of Israel in Palestine. Like it was to the Palestinians' faces. This is why a lot of the conflict only happened after the 1920s, after the Belfour Declaration. So a Zionist leader, he gave a speech in 1925 saying a Jewish state without compromises and without concessions 
from the Great Sea to the desert, including Transjordan. And this is kind of why Israelis don't like the from the river to the sea, because to them, the same calling actually meant extermination. Like that same calling to them, like we were like, why do you, why do you think it means we're going to throw you out? Why do you think like we just want freedom to them? It actually meant erasing Palestinians. And that's why it terrifies them. Right. But essentially what happens is. These Arab and Jewish Palestinians had a lot of conflicts from essentially the time of the Balfour Declaration or the Sykes-Picot Agreement where they chopped everything up and dedicated Palestine as a Jewish homeland until about 1929 when they came to a point, like they came to like this peak of tension, right, where Jewish people were setting up structures around Al-Aqsa Mosque. They were distributing flyers showing like the Zionist flag on top of the Dome of the Rock. And they were calling for, like I said, like that state of Israel. And Arabs were responding with harassment um, and abuse of Jewish parishioners going to that Western Wall. The number of Jews that died ultimately were about 116. This is just off Wikipedia. Or sorry, 130. And the number of Arabs that died were 116. Right. And a lot of those 116 Palestinians that died, like essentially the British police were killing Arabs out of defense of the Jewish communities. And following that, uh, 174 Arabs and 190 Jews were charged with murder or attempted murder. 40% of the Arabs were convicted and only 3% of the Jews were subsequently convicted. So that's kind of essentially what happened in 1929. That, that's the second, like, tipping stone because that 1929 Arab Jewish riot set up the ground for terrorist organizations like the Ergun, Haganah, and the Stern Gang terrorist groups to be created. Yeah, so those three terrorist groups basically are are what became the Israeli army. So they they killed a bunch of British and Arab civilians. They bombed things like hotels and markets. And they're responsible for, I'll jump ahead a little bit here. They're responsible for carrying out the ethnic cleansing of Palestine in 1948 that cleared out the Palestinians from most of the Palestinians from Israel's borders. A bunch of future Israeli prime ministers came from those three terrorist groups as well. Yeah, they even named the the, the Tel Aviv airport, I believe, after Ben Gurion, who's the guy who was like leader of the Ergun. He actually led the King David hotel bombing. So Israelis, or I would say like Zionists and Palestinians, they weren't Israelis at the time because Israel didn't exist. Zionists and Palestinians had almost a shared goal where they wanted to leave British rule. Um, in my opinion, that the Ergun began bombing British hotels. Like the King David Hotel was a British hotel, and that was kind of what started almost the Israeli state actually forming. That and the Nakba, those were the two like key ingredients to the Israeli state. One very, very, I would say, odd thing about Zionist history is something called the Havara Agreement, where Zionists worked. So like in the 1930s, as we, as we all know, like leading up to 19, 
39 or World War II and the Holocaust. Germany didn't just suddenly switch into a Nazi state. It was a Nazi state well before that, before they actually began killing them. They were pushing Jewish people into ghettos. They were marking them. There was a lot of oppression. There was a lot of Nazi oppression against Jewish people in Germany. The weird thing is that in, the 19, in 1933, about two years after the Ergun had formed, Zionists in Germany signed the Havara Agreement, which was basically to move Jewish populations from Germany into Palestine with a very specific caveat of like, hey, if we move them, <coughs> if we move them, they can sell their assets and basically take that money with them into Israel. So a lot of people wonder like why Israel is so successful and Palestine isn't. Israel literally began to import just hordes of cash, like hundreds of millions of dollars or tens of millions of dollars in 1930s level of inflation into Israel to help fund those communities. The Jewish people that were moving into Palestine were moving with the explicit intent of setting up a Zionist Israeli state. They were not moving with the intent to just immigrate to escape German oppression, although that was definitely a part of it because German oppression was very explicit and very apparent by this point. This led to the population booming. It's essentially doubled in between 1931 and 1936. This is also in part because the Ergun was illegally immigrating, I would say, Jewish people and disseminating them into Jewish settlements. So they called them Jewish settlements at the time. They were not calling them like Palestinian communities or Palestinian Jewish communities. They were setting them up as settlements in order to build that like larger Jewish state. That was always their intention to build up that ethno state, even if it began, like you said, with just like private property being bought up by Jewish civilians. So essentially, after that point, that's when it kind of like devolved. You had the period of time when the Holocaust happened. I don't know if I'd say Muslims allied themselves with the Axis powers. They're, so what, what you'll hear about is one guy who was named, I think, Husseini, who was a Palestinian leader in some capacity. He was the Grand Mufti, yeah. Who, who, who met with Hitler a few times and who was obviously anti-Zionist. And his, like, impact can be debated. So, like, his impact can be debated. Definitely a bad guy, no question about it. But unfortunately, today we see him used as a way to conflate Palestinians with Nazism in some way. And we see kind of ridiculous and insulting new terms like Palestinian Nazism which was never actually a thing. It's just a product of people today trying to somehow link Nazis and Palestinians. Like to be clear, Al Husseini, who was the Grand Mufti of Palestine, really did not have an effect on the outcome at the end of the day. Going back to the Ergun, I would say. The Ergun, like I said, they were set up after the Arab Jewish riots in 1929. And 
by 1938, they had already began explicitly attacking Arabs and inciting fear into the Arab population. Now, when we look at the context of Palestinian-Israeli history, there has to be kind of that understanding that after, especially after the Belfort Agreement in 1916, but even before that, after Zionism as a concept had started, all tensions were done with the context of existing Palestinians, Arab Palestinians, knowing that Jewish immigration was meant with the explicit idea of them trying to remove Arabs from that land. That was that was the, the context that they're in. In 1948, essentially after that bombing, after all these like Israeli terrorist attacks or Zionist terrorist attacks, they weren't Israeli yet, the Nakba happened. In 1948, the Nakba ethnically cleansed 700,000 Palestinians from the region. There were mass graves, massacres, there was looting, there was rape. The Jewish soldiers outnumbered the Palestinian soldiers two to one. The reason I'm pointing out these numbers is because there is almost sometimes an equivalence given where it's like, oh, well, it was a war in Israel one. This was not a war. This was an explicit massacre. Not only was it an explicit massacre, it completely dwarfs any other conflict that happened in the previous like decade, in the previous two decades. I mean, when we're talking about Arab-Israeli riots where... 113 Arabs are killed and 103 Jews are killed. These numbers are obviously terrible. Like, I mean, it's very sad, but it's it's so it's such a drop in the bucket compared to the ethnic cleansing that occurred in 1948. You're talking about a few hundred people on either side in populations that are hundreds of thousands. A lot of what happened in the 1950s was Israel basically figuring out how to exist and there there weren't really any major wars or conflicts other than in 1956 which Salah can talk about but something really interesting to note about Israel in the 1950s is this is when Israel started getting a lot of Arab Jewish immigrants which they call Mizrahim and what, what you'll hear pretty often from Israelis is if they'll admit that the Nakba happened and hundreds of thousands of Palestinians were forced out, what they'll say is, yeah, okay, that happened, but hundreds of thousands of Jews were forced out of Arab countries in the 50s, a few years later. So it's kind of like a one-for-one equivalence type situation. When you actually look into what actually happened, though, the vast majority of the immigration was kind of caused by Israel itself, not by any issues in the Arab countries themselves, except for a few rare circumstances or a few rare occasions. For example, in Iraq, the vast majority of Arab Jews were not forced out. They didn't have to leave. They were pretty happy where they were. 
a lot of them didn't even want to immigrate to Israel. They'd been there for hundreds and some even over a thousand years. So what Israel did was they, they adopted two strategies. One was like a pull strategy and one was a push strategy. So the, the pull was about creating like better economic opportunities and conditions for these new immigrants. It's the same reason anyone would move to a new country, you know, better job, better economy, etc. So a lot of these immigrants went to Israel of their own volition. And the second strategy was the was the push strategy. And some some documentation and and things have surfaced in the last few decades that show Israel's intelligence agency, the Mossad, was actively basically staging like fake attacks and terrorism in these Arab countries to scare the Arab Jews out of those countries and and to come to Israel. So this is when Israel got a lot of its Arab Jewish population and a lot of Arab Jews did leave the Arab world for Israel, but it's not because Except in a few rare circumstances, it's not because they were forced out. It was because they wanted to go. So that that's kind of like the, the response folks should have, the informed response to that, that point being made that just as many Jews were kicked out of the Arab world. Yeah. Something else to note here is that the, the Arab Jews were treated as second-class citizens and still are in a lot of ways within Israel. Uh, a, a lot of European Israelis saw these new immigrants kind of as being too Arab and too like the Palestinians. And even today, you'll often find these Jews in poorer neighborhoods. They have much lower education rates, much lower per capita income. And their situation isn't really getting better. It's getting better slowly but yeah that's the story of the 50s yeah and even like to that point when you see like ethiopian jews today refugees they're getting Mm -hmm. like forcibly sterilized or held in in not prisons but close to prisons they're not really given the same free (laughs) rights as like a settler from new york you know just gets a free house doesn't have to contribute anything they just pay him to settle basically that's his job Okay, I'll edit this yeah. and see if we Let's need to put our faces to it or not. Hey, okay. <laughs> all right, guys. Okay, yeah. sounds good. All right, guys, yeah, thanks. Me, uh, to... <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll like just it's just gonna be two pixelated blurs, you know. Yeah. But yeah, exactly. all right, guys. Uh, thanks for listening to another episode of Profits Over Profits. We were discussing the first half of Israel's history. About the first 70 years, I'd say. Well, the first half of Zionist history, we're just getting into Israeli history because it did only start in 1948. Thanks for listening. All right. See you. Cool. Bye. Okay. Bye, everybody.